Before we turn to our passage and our sermon for the day, I'd love to just remind you a little context of the sermon series that we're in. And if you turn in your bulletin to page six, we've got it laid out right there for you. Um, We've been in a sermon series, this is the fourth week, last few weeks, called Pillars. And we're just kind of asking, what are the main pillars of a church? If you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian, this would be a great series to think through. What, What should a church be all about? Um, We think these four pillars are essential for a church to be biblical. Um, And we started four weeks ago by looking at the pillar of worship. Um, The people of God are to gather to glorify God, to worship. Uh, The second pillar was community. Christians don't walk alone. Jesus calls us to gather, to be together. Last week we looked at discipleship. Christianity is about change, being transformed, putting on the new self. We grow So we glorify, we gather, and we grow. These are the pillars we've looked at, but all these things are not just for us. And today we have to look at the fourth pillar where we go. Jesus concludes almost all his gospels with with sending people. Go, go out. And I want you to notice that all the circles are interconnected because as we talk about mission today, and I want you to keep this diagram, put it on your fridge, keep it in your mind, Christians should never be about mission that doesn't ultimately tend towards worship. Our mission's not done if people aren't worshiping God. We don't do mission to leave people bowing to false idols. And in our mission, we want to bring people into community and the people of God. And we certainly don't just want to talk about human flourishing. We want to see people grow like Christ. That's Christian flourishing. That's why our mission always has to involve discipleship. So these things all go together, hence the diagram. But that's where we're headed today, mission. Now with this sermon, it's kind of like a hinge. We'll focus on mission in general today. And then in two weeks, I'm going to return to it and spend several weeks diving more deeply into it with a lot more practical application because this is really what I want to spend the next month or so with you thinking about. So our sermon today comes out of John 17. That's on page 903 in your pew Bible. John 17, you're welcome to turn there. Why don't I ask for God to help us as we turn to his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that I would not fear these people more than I fear you. And therefore, I pray I would help them by speaking what is true. I pray, God, we would tremble before your reality. We would feel something of your bigness like an ever-building current of water, Lord. We feel the passion you have for your son and his mission. And you'd catch us up in that as a church. So have your way with us now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have at least three things on my mind as we turn to the theme of mission as a church. At least three reasons, I think, not only that this is an important topic, but it's a crucial moment to turn to mission. And the first reason is clarity. Thinking about mission should bring clarity. You see, there's, there's so many things we could do, so many good things we could give our time and our resources to. You have ideas, you have passions. So how do we know what to say yes to? How do we know what to say no to? Missions brings clarity When we put ourselves under the mission of God and it impresses upon us what he's after, it's only in that space that we can then learn what our mission is. So that's the first reason. I'm praying it will bring clarity. The second reason 
that it's important we turn to mission is because people are leaving. People are leaving the faith in record numbers. So Jim Davis and Michael Graham in their buzzworthy new book called The Great Dechurching, they recount that over the last 25 to 30 years, around 40 million people have stopped attending church. These people have de-churched. And researcher Ryan Berg, who helps them with their book, he adds the following, quote, it's the largest shift in religiosity in America over the last 200 years. In the past 30 years, there's actually more people who left religion than joined religion during the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and all of the Billy Graham crusades combined. If you're living in the West, and we are, no matter how diverse our area gets, we're in the Western culture now. These are the values at play. If you're in the West, you're living now in a post-Christian context. So we have to figure out how to reach the West again. That's the second reason it's important we turn to missions. And the third is the most personal. It has to do with our little Anglican church. I was recently at a gathering that represented our diocese. These are Anglican churches that run from a little north of Baltimore down to Roanoke out to West Virginia. There's 42 churches. And as we were talking and getting an update, what became clear to me was that in the past year, we have seen almost no adult converts in our diocese. We've served people. We have not seen people get saved. We're very good at service. Give us a food pantry. Give us an ESOL ministry. And these are important things. Believe me, you'll see why these things are important in the course of our series. But you can't serve somebody into the kingdom. So we have to ask, along with serving people's practical needs, are we seeing people get saved by Jesus? And you know, this is a challenging topic. I'll just tell you right out of the gate, if this sermon were a mood ring, the mood would be challenging. And I hope inspiring, but that's the mood of what Jesus has for us today. Because you see, it's, I think it's easy to talk about service. I mean, it's a little bit hard to talk about service because you've got to give your time and money. But you really do feel good when you serve practical needs. And the world loves you for it. It's not that bad. But when you talk about the tip of the spear, what, what we would call evangelism, trying to tell people that heaven and hell are real, that Jesus is God, these things we're kind of embarrassed to say that are basic Christianity— all of a sudden, doesn't it feel challenging? Don't you get uncomfortable? Don't you think, well, that's kind of for professional missionaries. You know, I, I can't do that. So this is the third reason. Because whatever that muscle is, the muscle of evangelism, it's atrophying at a rate probably equal to the amount of people leaving the church right now. And I don't want anything to do with a ministry that doesn't follow missions into introducing people to Jesus on his cross. And I hope you don't either. So don't be afraid. This is the Lord's mission, as we're going to see. It's His power, but I really want us to be inspired by Him to lean into it. So that's the third reason, because I think this is a muscle. If I was a trainer, I'd say, look, this is your weak muscle. We have to develop it. And guys, I'm speaking to myself in this sermon. So those are three reasons I think it's important at this moment. I also want to acknowledge that missions is a controversial topic. It's controversial because on the one hand, you got to ask, well, what do you mean? Do you mean social action or do you mean evangelism or do you mean both? And we'll have to see through, through this series that both are involved, but there's a prioritizing that happens. There's an ordering to these things.
But it's also controversial because when people, non-Christians hear about missions, they, they think of imperialism. Oh yeah, this is where you go around the world and force your views on people and subsume their culture under yours. And that's an honest critique people have. But I want to assure you, and I hope you see through this sermon, that actual mission couldn't be further from that. We'll have to remember that, that when we get a window into God's motive for Jesus' mission in John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse, what does it say? For God so loved the world. God loves the world. And you know, people go on mission when they love something. I mean, you do all the time. You see a movie you love, what do you do? You tell people they have to see it. You bully. Why are you on mission like that? You go on vacation somewhere you love, you tell your friends, you just have to go there. You're on mission. You find a new workout regime you want, you got to use this. It's the best. It'll change your life. You'll never be healthier and stronger. You're on mission. You see, Christian mission is simply falling in love with something, finding something amazing, finding that it's touched your heart and wanting other people to have that same good. That's all it is. So if we, if we were to say we really want to ask in the next several weeks, what is our mission, both corporately as a church and maybe individually, maybe you want to ask that, where would we turn I mean, where would we turn in Scripture? There's actually a lot of places you could kind of walk into the Bible to address this question. I, I'm going to take us in through the portal of John 17. And I'm going to tell you why, John 17. So it, it's a passage in Scripture. It's 26 verses long, and it's a prayer. You may not know, you may know of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, but this is a prayer in John 17. It's a prayer of Jesus. And I, I've come to call this Jesus' missionary prayer. And, and here's where it comes. It comes at a very pregnant moment in Jesus' life. It comes at the end of one long night. And it's the last night he spends with his disciples before he's betrayed and crucified. And it begins in John 13 with the Last Supper. He has a meal with them. Then he washes their feet. Then in John 14, 15, and 16, he begins to instruct them. And the instruction is all about the fact that he's going to depart but they're going to stay and they're going to be on a mission and he's going to empower them by the Holy Spirit and they need to abide him. So he's preparing them for mission. And then when he gets to verse 17, he stops talking to them and he starts praying. You can see this in verse 1 of chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words, everything from John 13 to 16, when he spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he began to pray. Now this prayer breaks into three sections. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that he would finish his mission, that his hour has come, the cross has come. It's just like the Gethsemane prayer. He's stealing himself. In verses 6 through 19, he turns and he starts to pray for his immediate disciples. John, Peter, can you see him through his eyes, Bartholomew? And he prays, you heard it when it was read a moment ago, he prays that the Father would guard them protect them from the evil one. He says, look, I, I'm leaving, but they're not. Keep them, sanctify them. He's praying that they would be upheld in their mission. Then in verse 20 through 26, he prays for you. I'll show you this. Verse 20, see if you can find yourself in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian and you've come to faith through the word of the apostles, the word of God, Jesus is praying for you. 2,000 years ago, he started. So he starts in this last section, he prays for all of us that we would be one, that we would be guarded and faithful 
in our mission. Now, I want to enter into this great prayer through, through what is probably the most dense verse. It's verse 18. And this is the verse that begins to spell out how we would begin to think about what our mission is. I'll, I'll read it for you. Jesus says in verse 18, remember he's praying to the Father. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. Jesus then will repeat this almost verbatim right after his resurrection. On the first day when he's resurrected, he appears to Mary Magdalene in the morning. He appears to his disciples in the evening. And he says to them, John 20, verse 21, he says the same thing, but now it's a commissioning. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So here's when we, begin, we can begin to think about our mission. Okay, here's the logic of what he's saying. He's saying, as I was sent by the Father, so too I am sending you. So if someone said to you, as I play the piano, so too you play the piano. What would you do to play the piano? You would have to look at them, right? And, and you'd go off on your own. Oh, I have my own inspiration. No, you don't. As I play the piano, you do. So you have to learn how you play by imitating them. They've modeled it for you. So our mission, first and foremost, is modeled after Jesus' mission. We don't make it up on our own. So he's our model for what it is. He's also the foundation or the grounds, or you could say our mission is downstream from his. So here's, here's all I want to do today. It's very, it's very simple um, how we'll frame this. I want to ask, I want to consider what is the mission of the Son so we can better understand the mission of the Son's people. Now, there's going to be um, similarity and dissimilarity you know, we're not sent into the world as the Lamb of God to take away. Like if you walk out and tell someone I'm the light of the world just like Jesus, you'd be wrong. But there is similarity. And it may only be the similarity between a raindrop and the ocean. Jesus is the ocean. We're a raindrop, but both are wet. And so we're going to ask, what is similar between this great, only begotten Son of God's mission and why we're alive right now on earth? I'm going to give you three things about Jesus' mission, and in each case, we'll ask how it shapes ours. Number one, his mission involved life. Number two, it involves consecration. Number three, it involves joy. Life, consecration, and joy. Uh, so we'll begin with life. This is really, life is really about what did he come to do? Like, what's his main task? What's Jesus' metric by which he'll measure success? Okay, so life. Where do we see this come up? Well, in verses 1 through 5, as I said, Jesus is praying for himself. He's stealing himself because his hour, verse 1, had come. And in verses 1 and 2, as he prays, we begin to get a window into what he really came to accomplish. So listen, picking up at verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh... To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see the, the life theme there? God sent the Son and gave him authority in order for the Son to give eternal life. So Jesus' mission, it centers around life, whatever he means by this. And this is what we have to unpack. So what is this life that he gives? How do you get it? How does he go about offering it? 
Well, we can tell by the word eternal life that there's something about its quantity that's unique. It's duration, eternal. It doesn't end. It goes on past death. But it's not just the quantity of life that Jesus focuses on. Because you could have a really long, bad life, right? Jesus isn't talking about keeping you on life support forever. There's also a quality of the life. So it's not just long. It's full. Or as he says earlier in John, abundant. And we can see this in verse 3 when Jesus gives his definition of what eternal life is. You'd think he'd say, here's eternal life. That life goes on and on forever and ever and ever. You'd think that's how he would define it. It's not. Look at verse 3. It's a strange definition. He says, and this is eternal life. That they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is saying, men must know God. Above all else, they need to know God. What does he mean by that? That life is knowing God, the Father, knowing God, the Son. Well, he means that the essence of this life is a relational reality. And look, you know this. If you're in love, if you recently got married, someone would say, what's your life all about? It's about her or him being together. We lose track of time when we're together. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I came to... to to reunite you with the maker and lover of your soul. Are you interested in that? And when we look back through the gospel, we can see all these different shades upon what this life looks like. This is the quality of it, not just the duration. Jesus says he's the light of the world in John 8, 12. As light, it means the life that he gives dispels darkness. You know you can't have a really robust life if you're lying all the time, right? Hiding in the darkness. You know you can't have a robust life if you're ignorant all the time. Jesus is light. He brings you into the light. Jesus says in John 6 that he's bread. I am the bread that came down from heaven. What does that mean? It means he's sustenance. It means he is your provision. Jesus says in John 7 that he's water. He says if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This means that what he's saying, the life he's coming to give, is he's aiming to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. That's what he's come to do. So however else you you may have been taught to think about the Christian mission, remember that Jesus has not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And what that means for him is tracking you down. Yes, you and saying, I have come to give you this life because you're languishing. That's what the life is. We need to ask briefly before we move to the next point. How exactly does he give it? If you have a, if you have a kind of type of cancer of the blood and you go into the hospital, you're really sick, but you've also been in a bike accident, let's say, so you're all beat up on the body, right? You go, you're just a mess. But you go in and what you need is to be cured. You need a blood transfusion. And you go in and what the nurse does and what the team does is they fix up all your outer bruises and bumps and send you away. We fixed you up and you feel great. Well, the only problem is you haven't actually got what you really need, the blood transfusion. So what I'm asking right now is is how does the life Jesus brought get into you rather than just floating around inside you? You see, people could think because Jesus is the light, that the way we get light from him is listening to his teaching, right? I mean, light dispels falsehood. So if you want to know Jesus, get a few of his teachings. He's like a better Aristotle. 
Or they'd say, look at Jesus's inspiration for you. In John 13, he watches the disciples' feet. He's a better Gandhi. You just need to be inspired, that's all. Or you could say he's a healer who heal all your sicknesses. That's how you get life. If that was true, Jesus could have stopped at the foot washing in John 13. He's already healed people. He's already modeled sacrificial love. He's already given the Sermon on the Mount. But notice what he says in verse 1. He says, my hour has come. Now what's fascinating is prior to this, when he did all those wonderful things of illumination and kindness and service, he had always said, my hour has not yet come. Do you know this in John? He turns the um, water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And he says, my hour has not come. He feeds the 5,000. He says, my hour has not yet come. He heals people. He teaches people. He inspires people. And he continually says, my hour has not yet come. But here in verse 17, excuse me, in chapter 17, verse 1, it's profound. It should ring in your ears. Father, the hour has come. This is what the hour means. It means the cross. You see, Jesus isn't just light and bread and water. He's also called a lamb. He's called a lamb in John 1 verse 29. John the Baptist sees him. He lays eyes on him for the first time and he says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And any Jew knew exactly what lamb meant. It meant slaughter. Here's how Jesus gives life. By giving his own. The only way that Jesus can get this abundant life into us is by dying for us on the cross. And this is because along with needing enlightenment and motivation and kindness and good deeds, human beings need atonement. Do you know what that means? Atonement means our sins need to be paid for before God. It means we need to have someone die in our place. You see, the, the Jews and the early Christians had a much higher view of justice than we do today. They didn't always practice it. We have a horizontal view of justice based on human rights. They had a horizontal and vertical view of justice based on God's righteousness. And they knew that one day they would stand before God and they would give an account for their life in a great cosmic law court. And everything they had done would be brought out and exposed and they would be judged for it. And they knew they wouldn't be able to stand before God and to be accounted right. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he takes your sin, all our failings, onto himself and on the cross, he atones, he absorbs the wrath of God in our place. This is why we read in John 3, 36. Notice, notice what Jesus compares with eternal life here. He contrasts with eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, you can't get rid of the wrath of God through good teaching. Only through a sacrifice. So this is simply the first point. And it's the longest point. You know, we had the entree first. They're just appetizers after this. But this is the first point. The first point is that Jesus came to give life and the great deed of his mission, the great act he had to do to purchase life was the cross, which means for us, not that we go into the world as the sacrificial lamb, but we have to be on mission to make Jesus on his cross non-ignorable in Washington, D.C. If our ministry of this church leaves Jesus ignorable, 
were not on his mission. In various ways, in various timing, we have to press to have an evangelistic encounter with the West again. And this means making Jesus Christ non-ignorable. Because that's the only way you get life. That's what he came to do. Two more questions I'm going to ask. The second is, how did he go about doing it? So, so now I'm kind of asking, what was his, his manner? How did he go about doing this? And this is where we're going to look at the word consecration. And, you know, you could, you could ask, what is a missionary's heart like? If you were to look into Jesus' missionary heart, what was it passionate about? What was it thinking about? I'm not so much interested in, in, in how he went about things on the outside, but what motivated him? And we see this if we think about the word consecration. So in verse 17 through 19, you're going to hear the word sanctify used and consecrate. They're the same exact word, just translated differently. But here's what Jesus says. Remember, he's praying. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus says in verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself and I'm praying that they would sanctify themselves. Now again, these are this, this is the same word. It comes from a Greek word that, that is the word for holiness. And um, it's also where we get the word saint. And, and here's what this means. Here's basically what Jesus means. To be consecrated, it would have called, called to a Jewish person, it would have made them think of the Old Testament when maybe a great prophet like Isaiah was consecrated to serve the Lord or, or the priest Aaron and his family, were, the sons were set apart, consecrated. And it means really two things, two sides of a coin. First, to be consecrated means to be set apart from. To set apart something, you know, you set apart your nice is dishes from common use. Jesus is set apart from the world Okay, he's set apart from it, but it also means you're set apart for. So set apart from, set apart for. He's set apart for the service of God. He's set apart from ungodliness. He's set apart for godliness, to serve the Lord. Apart from ungodliness, for godliness. And what's interesting here is that I want you to see is this doesn't just mean that Jesus was well-behaved. You know, he didn't commit any sins. Of course it means that. But that's very surface love, surface love and, and, and really superficial. That's all we see here. What I want you to see is that a consecrated heart is very unique on the inside in terms of what it's motivated by and what it's freed from. And so Jesus is the only human being that's ever lived on earth. If you want to know one of the unique things about him, it's this. He's the only human who's ever lived who was entirely free from the need for the praise of men. He did not need glory from us. And that's why he was free to serve us. If you need praise from people, you can't perfectly serve them because you only go so far. You never will go far to the point that people would stop liking you in order to serve them. You know how that works? So Jesus is set apart from the need for glory from us and he's utterly set apart for glorifying God. This is why glory comes up so much in verses 1 through 5. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is the missionary heart. It's, it says, Lord, I am 100% for you. 
And of course, we're not on Jesus' level, but we say, little by little, Lord, please wean me off the need for the glory and praise of man. And do you know why this is so applicable? And, and I'll just apply the sermon to myself right now, to, to Sam, a pastor and your rector. The thing, probably the greatest thing that gets in the way, besides busyness, of me being on mission like this is the fear of man. Um, and the fear of man is really the same thing as needing praise from others. I mean, it, it, I'm just, you know, you don't want to look embarrassed. You don't want to look like a religious fanatic. I mean, you know, my, my roommate in college used to say, two things you never talk about, right? You never talk about religion and politics. Keep it to yourself. Yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't bring that up. Because I want you to like me more than I want you to like Jesus. That's why I won't bring it up. The fear of man is something Jesus was free from. You know, he says in John 2, it says, Jesus didn't entrust himself to men. He knew what was in them. He didn't want our glory, that cheap praise. He wanted to bask in the sun of his father's pleasure. So let me ask you, are you consecrated to the Lord as an individual? Are you set apart for him? For Jesus, this meant total obedience to God, wherever he asked him to go, whatever he asked him to do, right through the cross. And it meant that he was all for God's glory. You know, I grew up in a house with Christian parents. It's the greatest blessing God gave me before I met Jesus. Even before I was a Christian, I had Christian parents. Some of you are Christian parents. What a blessing that is to your children. And in our house, there was a mantle over a fireplace, a big old piece of wood. And on the mantle was a, was a, a, a brass plaque. And I never remember a time when it wasn't there. Some of my parents put up and on the plaque, it read, and later I learned this was a verse from Joshua. It says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was the Ferguson house mission statement. Does your house have a mission statement? Does your life? I mean, you're on a mission. Who knows what you're living for? But if you carved a mission statement onto the front of your house or wore it on your t-shirt, what would it say? Are you set apart utterly? For the Lord. That's the missionary heart. That's consecration. Jesus came to give life. The way he went about it was total consecration to God. And third, what did he get out of all this? Misery. Third is joy. This is the great mystery, friends. If you want joy, this is the path to it. Notice what Jesus prays in verse 13. He says, But now, Father, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. That they, meaning his disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now this is, this is worth looking at. You know, you could read this quick and think, see, Jesus is praying that I would have joy. And you walk out and you're expecting that through your various things that you're doing on your mission, you're wondering why you're not getting joy out of them. Jesus said he's praying for me to have joy. Well, notice the pronoun in front of the word joy. He says, my joy He's saying, I want my joy to be in them. I mean, what if a parent said to her daughter, I want my happiness to be your happiness. She probably would mean that there's some sort of much deeper, far more sophisticated way of being happy that she wants her daughter to learn. And she knows it's going to take her a long time. So what was Jesus's joy? Because this is the joy he's been praying since that day for us to have. We can get a clue into what his joy was. It certainly wasn't rooted in being successful on earth in our eyes. We can get a clue if we look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read that Jesus endured the cross, 
for the joy that was set before him. Or another way it could be read is, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Okay, what does this mean about his joy? Okay, he's going through the cross in obedience to his Father. So the first thing it means is that what made Jesus most happy was obeying his Father. You've tasted that some, haven't you? I know you have. Those moments where even though life is difficult, you say, yes, God, I'm going to obey you. Isn't there a sweetness in that? Not a pleasure of the flesh. We're talking way deeper than that. A pleasure of the soul. That's what made Jesus happy, obeying his father. But that's not all. He's saying he's going through the cross. And he would have understood that what the cross represented was a very deep channel coming out of the heart of the Father through him to the world about the Father's motives in this mission. And we said it a moment ago, but he would know that, that despite the difficulty he has with the world, and you know, he paints a pretty tough picture of the world in John's gospel. He says to the disciples, the world will hate you because you identify with me. He says the world has hated me. He says we're told he came to his own in the world and they rejected him. He says the world doesn't come to the light because they're in love with darkness. He says some hard things about the world. But as I said earlier, in the middle of all that is John 3:16. For God so loved this world. And notice in verse 18, our controlling text, where is Jesus sending us? Into the world. And so Jesus' joy is that he's obeying the Father, but in such a way that the Father's love is flowing to the world, even though the world hates him. And you probably know this too in small doses. Hating someone has a type of sick pleasure, right? It's like you're nursing a piece of candy, nursing resentment in your mouth. But haven't you tasted that moment? It's very rare sometimes where you break through to loving your enemy because God calls you. Don't you experience a deeper joy? And you'd say, this isn't a pleasure of the flesh. This is some unbelievably liberating mountain air flowing down from above. I'm, I'm loving the world that hates God and hates me. And it's strangely making me happy. Do you see the connection between mission and joy? You know, one of the reasons we're plunging into a mental health crisis in our culture is because of what a pathetic mission we have set in front of our world. The last 40 or 50 years has been all about me. You're on earth to serve yourself. Find out who you are, your true self, and serve it. Our mission is to make us great. And it's been a disaster. You know, um, Frederick Nietzsche, who's a weird person to quote to support Jesus, in his book, Twilight of the Idols, he has this amazing quote. He says, if you have your why in life, you can get along with almost any how. Jesus knew his why. Why was he here? I'm here on the Father's errand. I'm here to serve God. I've entrusted my life to him. Why are you here? Because God loves this world and I'm determined that they'll feel it. And the father has decided that his mission is to make his son non-ignorable as the most non-ignorable reality for the rest of history. Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. And this mission made Jesus happy. You know, we have a fellows program. And in this program, young college graduates come 23, 
22 years old, and they spend nine months with us. And we help them learn about how their faith impacts all of life. And during this year, there's a lot of talk about jobs and vocation, right? What are you going to do? How are you going to go into the world? And, you know, if you ask a fellow what they want to do, none of them say, well, I don't know. I'm just hoping to clock in and clock out one day. Make ends meet. I don't know. Paperwork. That's not why people come to Washington. They want to make a difference. They want to change the world. Why? Because we all know that being on mission is integrally related to our joy. Um, in, in her New York, instant New York Times bestseller, uh, Jennifer Wallace, the book is titled Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic. Um, Wallace uh, recounts what's happening to people through this pressure of achievement. And um, she tells the story of, of a girl, we'll call her Amanda. She says, Amanda excels at school. She's a pianist, a varsity athlete, an honor student, and the president of the debate club. She gets early acceptance to an elite university, lands the right summer internship, and after graduation, secures the job of her dreams. Amanda has run the race. She has hit the mark. She has lived up to her potential, and she's fulfilled the ambitions of her parents. Unfortunately, she's also a mess. For years, despite the accolades, Amanda has felt utterly vacant inside. Why? Because Amanda is living for metrics. There's no meaning under all this beyond herself. Friends, that is not the Christian life. This writer, um, Wallace, as she ends her book, she talks about a revelatory experience she had. And we're moving to close with this in her book, Never Enough. Um, as she's researching, she went to a Catholic boys' school in Cleveland called St. Ignatius High. And she observed the teachers there and found that they're encouraging students to develop not only their brains, but their hearts. Students engage daily in reflection and they have to give time to service, but, but not to pad their resumes, but for becoming, as the Jesuits say, men for others. That phrase leapt off the page to me. It lit up men for others. Jesus was a man for others. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he's sending us to be a people for others, even to be the life of Christ to others. So friends, in all we do, and we're going to get into more specific application about what this looks like for our lives in later sermons, but in all we do, we need to be a people who understand that we've been sent into the world. So whatever patch of real estate is your world, whatever family, whatever apartment, whatever mansion, whatever tiny cottage, who cares? Whatever patch of real estate God's put you in, see the intentionality of the sending of the Son. And make it your ambition through prayerfulness, through conversations, through a whole way of life that you would make your home, your neighborhood, a place where Jesus is non-ignorable for the sake of the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that we would be a church increasingly consecrated to your mission and I pray we'd feel more joy in going on mission than we do in anything else. And that that would ruin us to all other endeavors. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.